he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. get me a gay mickey gotta get a gay well hello and welcome to another episode of in the details you know by now this is a celebration of nuance most specifically acting choices micro moments and all of the little things that happens in movies and tv shows that make me go oh my god i need to make a whole podcast about this and talk about it every freaking week my name is colin drucker and i am so happy to be here um, I have got, I have had, um, not that I'm going to just like go off on complaining because nobody came here to listen to that, but I have just had a week. I have had a week. And I mean, I feel like it is that thing of like, there's something going on. There's something in the stars. Like there's just something weird. I don't know how much I believe in things like, you know, Mercury retrograde and the moon's doing this and the stars are doing that. And there's something in Uranus and is Pluto a planet? I don't know. Um, why not? Right. Who are we to say we're, we're one planet telling another planet what it can be like, fuck off earth. Um, you don't got your shit together, you know? Um, and so I just feel like, yeah, there's just some weird shit going on and I'm totally seeing it in my life, but it's all good. I mean, I had to go to a funeral last weekend, and I feel like, and this is actually relevant to today's episode, um, I feel like it wasn't like a, a super close. It was, my, it was my sister-in-law's father, and he was much older, and it was kind of, you know, one of those, well, you know, that this didn't come as a total surprise, but it's still, you know, nobody's like looking forward to it, right? And it changes everything. And I feel like just kind of like, even if it's not a direct loss, just having that like glimpse of death, like just having that moment of like, oh, there's the bookends of life. Like, I just think that kind of like throws my circuits off a little bit for a few days. Like, I think it just kind of like sends everything a little haywire. And um, it's kind of an interesting experience. Like I kind of, I think grief is very fascinating. Um, I think it's, um, I don't know. I love to talk to people about grief and about like the way they experience it. I remember when um, this was like, you know, almost 10 years ago now, but my grandfather died and it was like the first person in my life was like the first grandparent who had died. And so like, like the closest loss and like my first real experience with, with real grief. And like, let me back up. It was, I, I should say this was my first experience with this type of grief because before this, there was of course the dog, uh, Mickey, who, um, went on her merry way when I was 15. And that was the worst experience of my life. Um, but that's a whole different experience. Like, I think this grief thing is, it is kind of an adult experience. Um, I remember just like Googling, like what, uh, like what's normal? You know what I mean? Like, how are you supposed to grieve? And the answer basically was like, there is no normal. There's no one way to grieve. There's no one way to like process something. Like whatever comes up is just what came up. Um, and you just have to kind of like roll with it. And I, um, I find that when, when I'm in grief, I just like, I rebound to like anything that's going to feel good. And I like love to eat. I think part of why I love grieving is because it, to me, it feels like this permission slip to just eat as many donuts as I can cram in my mouth. You know, like I think there is this like weird delusion that I've taken on about grief that like, because whenever I'm in grief, I do a lot of fun things. Like it's kind of like, a vacation it's the weirdest experience and i know that it's oh i was gonna say i know that it's fucked up but i don't know if that's i don't think that it's fucked up 
I, I should, yeah, no, I don't think it's fucked up. I think it's just like, that's just my way of doing it, you know? And eventually, like, I come back to normal and I come back to like, even Steven again. And it's like, okay, where was I? What was I doing? I guess you could say that what I'm doing is like just, you know, living life to the fullest and appreciating life more because I've confronted death. But that's not true. That's like a really great little narrative. That's a nice way to cap things. But that's not what I'm doing. I'm not. I am. It's it's totally just like it's a way of just dealing with difficult emotions. It's just like a way of um, of not getting totally paralyzed. You know, um, it's a coping mechanism. I think that's the, you know. The, the too long didn't read of it. It's just a coping mechanism. It's part of the process. And so, um, and you know, you can always, you can lose grief weight. Actually, I don't even think you gain grief weight because honestly, like I, you know, when someone dies, like I can pack the pizza away and my pants still fit. So, you know, you figure it out. Anyway, the reason all of this is relevant, other than I'm just kind of like using this as like a little diary, I guess, um, but whatever, you're here for it, or you can just fast forward. You just hit that 15 over and over until you get something you want to hear. Um, the reason, though, that I am talking about all of this is because today's, um, today's feature, as you probably know from the title of this episode, is the 2008 movie Rachel Getting Married, which... If you're not familiar with, you might not realize is in fact a whole story about people in grief and how they're navigating grief and how they're trying to navigate joy when grief is still kind of like, you know, uh, coming in like rain clouds and how to still, you know, uh, have the joy anyway, even if the rain does come, um, which I guess, spoiler alert, does kind of happen in the movie, right? There's rain. Um, the, yeah, in any event, maybe I'm thinking of Monsoon Wedding. Um, in any event... <laughs> I um, I love this movie. I There's so much I have to say about it. I'm going to just kind of like hone in on a few, obviously, like choice moments, micro moments, scenes, in the details, celebration of nuance. You know, you've been here before. You know what you're doing. You know what you're listening to, you know? Rachel Getting Married, it's directed by Jonathan Demme, and it was written by Jenny Lumet, who is the daughter of Sidney Lumet, who is the director of 1977's Network, starring Best Supporting Actress winner Beatrice Strait who is also a feature of the second episode of In the Details, Gay for Beatrice Strait. Um, maybe that was all very obvious to you, um, but I just felt like I should explain all of those things of the significance of this, that we are creating little connections um, over on my other podcast, All Right, Mary, when we, on our, our bonus episodes that we do on Patreon, we've kind of assembled this kind of like we call it with matrions because it's Mary's who are patrons. Um, you probably know that because you're a listener from All Right Mary. But we've kind of, you know, we, we figure out who are our Matreon alums. Like, oh, how many movies have we, how many movies have we reviewed with Shelley Long in it or Whoopi Goldberg or whatever? Um, and I feel like the same thing is going to happen here because I love to catalog. I love to archive. I love, like, that's been... Have I talked about the whole Bruce Valanche thing on this podcast yet? I've, I've talked about it like seven or eight times on All Right, Mary. But so I, if you've heard it before, bear with me and I'll just give the really short version. But there, the episode of What's the Tea, the RuPaul and Michelle's podcast, uh, when Bruce Valanche was on, he talked about this whole experience as a gay, you know, as a little gay boy um, and his experience of cataloging, of just like cataloging pop culture and singers and, and actresses and movies and references and designers and just kind of like absorbing all of that and just kind of like creating this archive in his mind of all these things, which of course he now builds, you know, he built an entire career on, but I totally know what that experience is. And the fact that he kind of um, qualified it as something, as something gay, as something like as a, as a queer experience, I was like, oh, 
Yeah, I can totally see that. And there's probably a whole host of reasons why, which is probably a whole other conversation. And so I feel like that happening on All Right Mary and that happening here and in the details is just maintaining what I've been doing my entire life is basically what I'm trying to say. You're familiar with Rachel getting married, right? Like, you know, I'll give you like the quick rundown, but I feel like you know. Um, But just in case. uh, So Anne Hathaway plays Kim, who is coming out of rehab to come home to her sister's wedding. Um, at their house, I think, in Connecticut. And uh, her sister is Rachel, of course, played by Rosemary DeWitt. Uh, And she, of course, is not just seeing her sister, but her father, played by Bill Irwin, her stepmother, played by Anna DeVere Smith, her mother, played by Deborah Winger, um, old childhood friends. Uh, There's, you know, meeting uh, Rachel's husband-to-be. There's, uh, and he's the lead singer of, I can't remember his name, I should look it up, but he's the lead singer of TV on the radio, which I thought was really cool, and he does sing in the movie. It's it's a very musical movie. Um, it's, it's It's a very performative movie, and I think that's a... Um, a good word to lead us into talking about Anne Hathaway. But really, like, what we're seeing is these are all different players and different characters in this family tragedy that they all share, which, of course, is that um, Kim and Rachel's little brother died because Kim was high and was driving and drove off a bridge, and uh, their little brother drowned. And that's kind of was, of course, her rock bottom, but also was kind of the rock bottom for the family. It's what led to um, their parents getting divorced. It's what led to... I think, you know, a whole host of, of baggage that Rachel was forced to carry as the older sister, um, as kind of, you know, she wasn't the focus, you know? How could she be? You know, their brother was dead, and Kim was just a whirlwind of drama long before this ever happened. Kim is a very complicated, difficult character that you— I feel like when you first see the movie, you, you kind of think you're supposed to like her, and then you kind of resent Anne Hathaway because you don't. And then I think the more I watched it, the more I realized that you're not supposed to really like or dislike her. But what Anne Hathaway is doing is entirely accurate. I'm not like the biggest, I'm, you know, I'm, I feel like a lot of people shit on her. And I think that she can be a little performative sometimes or it can feel a little put on or a little like, you know, a, a little, you know, theater kid kind of quality, you know, a little too rent. Um, and I get that. And that's maybe some people that doesn't bother them. I I have the unpopular opinion that I'm not a fan of rent, but I respect the people who are. So save me the letters, save me the tweets. Um, and so I get, I get the criticism there. I have not seen her in Les Mis, her, you know, Oscar winning, her best supporting actress, Oscar winning performance. Um, I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to that one way or the other, but who she is, who she is as Kim, like what she's capturing is supposed to be kind of fake and it's supposed to be kind of over the top in a like she's in her 20s but she's still having this kind of emotional reaction as if she's a very hormonal teenager you know and it's kind of obnoxious and it's like just fucking grow up but that kind of comes with addiction you know it comes with you know when you you kind of have this emotional arrested development like she's still stuck at whatever um whatever age everything kind of went off the rails for her there isn't really the sense that like it could get better or that rehab really would work. And even if it does, right? Like, does that mean everything is forgiven? Like, and I think those are all of the questions and all the challenges that this family is facing. And she is the perfect foil for that because it's like, there are moments where you totally can and do want to forgive her. And then there's other moments where it's just like, Oh God, just get out of this house. Like take your chaos and take your drama and take your, um, all your, all your bullshit. That being said, 
I, I'm not focusing her on her as much in this episode because there's so much else that I want to focus on. So before we get into some of the deeper nuances of Rachel getting married that I love, I do want to mention, uh, I guess these would be micro moments or um, micro roles that I think are just worth noting um, because I really like both of these actresses. Um, I've seen them both in um, some plays in New York. And so it's always kind of, I feel like it felt like there were a lot of New York actors in this movie, but maybe I'm just um, inferring that from these two. Um, one is uh, Rosalind Ruff, who I, I just saw this play called uh, Fairview that she was in, and then I think she was replaced by another actress um, who was also amazing, um, but I would have loved to see her in that. And I saw her in something else um, like years ago at the New York Theater Workshop, and she just kind of always stuck in my mind, and then I would kind of see her pop up in different movies and shows. Um, I saw her in the first episode of Pose. She played um, one of the characters' mothers, and uh, she's great. She's just like, she's, every time I see her, I'm like, oh, look, it's you. Um, and then the other actress that I really like is Quincy Tyler Bernstein, who I've seen, um, I think I saw her in this play. Oh, I saw her in this play called Family Week. Um, not a great play. Also was starring Rosemary DeWitt, so that's cool. Um, and then I saw her in... I think she was also, it was the New York Theater Workshop, she was in this production of The Misanthrope that was directed by this um, this guy, Ivo Van Hove, who is crazy bananas. He is fascinating. You should totally go look him up. It's I-V-O and then Van Hove, um, which is, you. I mean, I'll put it in the description or I'll tweet about it. Um, or you know about him and you can tweet me and say, hey, you're saying his name wrong. Oh, and I also, the other place where I knew Quincy Tyler Bernstein from uh, before I think any of that was she was in this... Uh, sketch from the Chappelle show um, when Keeping It Real Goes Wrong and she played Brenda who um, didn't like people playing on her phone and <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I'm going to be really honest with you I don't know if, if we would if in 2018 we would look at this as problematic I have no idea I remember at the time thinking it was very funny um, and that's where I land with it I'm just going to sit on the fence here and move on anyway so since we've mentioned her let's talk about Rosemary DeWitt and let's talk about Rachel. Um, I think this character is fascinating. I think that Rosemary DeWitt is fascinating. I feel like everything that she does feels like it has this air of intelligence. Like she just seems like a very smart woman and a very smart actress. And I think um, both like intellectually and emotionally. And I think there's so much about Rachel that is shown and not told. I mean, so much about this movie is the art of showing and not telling. And um, they're they're pretty good about the exposition. I mean, it definitely comes up, and we're going to talk about certainly one of the scenes that probably would be considered more exposition heavy, but I think it works in the moment because sometimes you have to have those come-to-Jesus conversations where you're just like, okay, here's the receipts, here's this we need to talk about, and another thing, here's this other thing we need to address. And like, you do have to lay it all out sometimes. And so I get it. And what Jonathan Demi and Jenny Lumet and Rosemary DeWitt are all kind of doing together with this character is um, the the weight that she carries, the weight that Rachel carries being the least interesting of the three, of being the one who can draw the least focus, you know, because... Kim is, of course, the star always, and their brother has died, and so he is always looming, and he's always a topic that is both always present and one that can't be talked about, and she's bringing none of that to the table. I think, actually, she is a therapist or a psychologist or somehow works in the mental health field and that she is a professional, and so she definitely brings that studied point of view 
to this, you know, endemic experience of all the things she's then studied in college. And of course, she's met this great guy. And due to the power of editing, I was able to look up the actor's name is uh, Tunde Adebimpe. I think I said that correctly. And, she, you know, who just seems like a great guy, a total catch, has a great family. It seems like she has just assembled a really solid life despite all of these odds. And it's not just because of Kim's addiction or the fact that Ethan passed away. It's also what happened with their father and the way that he just was always focused on Kim. We even hear at one point that, you know, which will, and we're going we're to get into that scene, trust me, where, you know, the only way to get their father's attention was to, was to mention Kim, was to bring up her name because that was the only thing he was concerned about. That was what his whole life focused around. And I can kind of understand that. I mean, he plays this, you know, incredibly codependent role and this, you know, I think that he is he's keeping the trauma at bay for himself and everybody else in the room. That's his job, and to just keep everything running smoothly, but he's actually just steamrolling over everything in the process, you know? And so Rachel's really the one to see that. Rachel's really the one to um, kind of get steamrolled, and then, like, it's sort of like a cartoon, just, like, peel herself back up and then, like, kind of, you know, reanimate, you know? And I think that she's just had to do that over and over and she's established a stable or sustainable, I think is the better word, life more than anyone else there. What we really see is that Rachel doesn't get to be the daughter. She has to reprimand Kim. She has to inform her father the way a wife would of like, here's what you don't know. Here's what I know. And here's how we need to deal with this. There's the sense of like, this is what our expectations of Kim were, that if she went to rehab, she had to get better. If she's not going to get better, then she's, you know, this isn't going to work. I mean, this is leading us all up to the scene that I do want to dive into first in this episode. And that is, of course, um, this confrontation that happens after, I think, Rachel, I think she has heard one too many lies. I think that she has um, held out hope one too many times um, to set up the scene uh, she and Kim have gone to the salon to get their hair done and get manicures before the wedding. And while they're there, while Rachel uh, is getting her hair washed and Kim is getting her hair colored, um, this guy who works at the salon recognizes Kim and approaches her and, you know, is looking at her like, I've been looking for you my entire life. And it's an interesting way that it's shot because Rachel is, you know, she's in the background and you can see her sitting up and just kind of like listening. Do you remember that exercise where we had to write down experiences and pass them anonymously to another person? Yeah, 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 yeah. The human mirror, um, seeing things from a fresh perspective. Mm -hmm. I got yours. Mm-hmm. You drew poodles in the margins. I know it's supposed to be anonymous and everything. Yeah. But you, you were so brave. The way your uncle abused you and your sister, and how it led to your sister's anorexia, and how you stayed up nights with her when she was down to 50 pounds. Mm. I will never forget reading that, I swear to God. Yeah. I never, ever thought I would have the chance to thank you. It was your strength that gave me the courage to confront my own abuse. And, help turn my life around. and so, of course, Rachel is listening to all of this, and she's not only hearing that these are lies, but these are lies that are implicating her. These are lies that are putting the addiction and are putting the um, 
the the responsibility onto her and i think at that moment it's just like this is this is too much like to go to rehab and lie um and and to pretend like that is uh, recovery is a whole other issue. So, of course, Rachel storms out. Kim runs after her. And then in the parking lot, Rachel confronts her. You know, I never had anorexia. And um, you certainly didn't watch over me while I was sleeping. And we don't have a goddamn pedophile uncle who made our childhood a living hell and explains away all your shit in one fell swoop. Did you tell them that dad forced us into a life of prostitution as well? I wasn't hurting. No one got hurt, Rach. Where are you going? And then drives off. And when she gets back to the house, um, she's talking with Paul, with her father. And I feel like this is, this is Rachel as the daughter. This is Rachel trying to appeal to her father as the daughter and it's not working. I'm sorry, but I hate her. No, you don't hate Dad, don't tell me what I don't hate. I hate, hate, hate the lies. I mean, she lied in rehab. What do you mean she lied? I mean, she, she lied Rachel? to the people who were working with her, who were trying to help her. Dad, she lies to everybody. Where is she now? Where am I now, Dad? God. Rachel! We're in here, Kim. And I think it's really the way that he says, where is Kim? And she says, where am I? And just kind of looks away and, and it's like, and then realizes like, yeah, like so many things. Like, why does that not occur to you? Why am I trying to get it to occur to you? Like, you can kind of feel that Rachel's like, you know what? I think this is a go for broke moment. You know, like I think she's realizing that this is it. And that's, of course, when Kim arrives back at the house. Why would it hurt you? It wasn't about you. Why not? Rachel. What? Stop, Dad. Why not? Why wasn't it about me? I mean, I was hopeful. I was on your side. I still am. I mean, do you have any idea what that means? Do you have any idea how lonely it was here with everybody gone into your terrible little world? I mean, there was nothing left. Everybody was just empty. You, you think that they knew I was alive or needed anything during your life. <laughs> and after all that, the fights, the screaming, the, the blaming, the loneliness, and mom and dad, and the divorce, and the, the... <sighs> death, um... Hopefulness. I mean, and Dad, not even being able to listen to music anymore. You were lying about us instead of telling the truth about yourself. I hate to interrupt these moments, but just to kind of set the scene, and what I really love about it is um, there's this interesting choreography in terms of um, the way people leave the room, other people who are not essential to this conversation. Um, they they know to exit doors get closed music outside is you know they stop playing the music um and the only people who are in this room are paul rachel kim and carol and the way that they're all positioned is really important as well because rachel is on the couch with her father um, and they're sitting across from kim who's in the chair across the living room and then carol is sitting over in the corner um by sort of a side table and i think what that's all kind of denoting is this is where everyone's role is. This is everyone's position. Everyone has taken position for the situation. And 
I love as Rachel, there's no, she doesn't start losing her shit. She's not screaming. There's this very measured tone. And you can see her thinking about in different moments, like how she's going to say it, if she's going to say it. You know, especially this one point where she is asking, like, do you think they even cared about me? Like, did they even notice me? Um, I think it's this thing that she's kind of never said. And she glances away a little bit as if she knows she's saying it in front of her father. You know, it's like, am I going to do this? Am I going to say this in front of him? Um, Because I've never said it before, and now I'm saying it. And then, of course, it's, you know, it's really leading into, and I think this is very interesting that, like, Everyone kind of lets her speak and tell her side. But as soon as she starts to bring up something about Kim, um, it it stirs up her father. It stirs everybody up. And this is, of course, um, things sort of take a turn at this moment. What is this about, girls? Well, uh, apparently she has a whole history of sexual molestation that we didn't know about. What? Kim, what's your sister saying? Did you say you were sexually molested? It was a long time ago. Were you? No. Why in God's name would you say something like that? It was an anonymous exercise, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. I really actually like Bill Irwin in that moment when uh, Rachel says that, when she says apparently she has a history of sexual abuse, and um, Kim says, you know, it was a long time ago, and he has that that look on his face where it's like he, it's, it's, it's so informed. It's so him being confronted with, like, the Mount Kilimanjaro of awful news and he's not even quite sure if it's real there's that other element too of like you're telling me there might be a mountain in front of me that i have to climb do i have to climb it and the way that he says is it true is really him kind of like standing on the edge of saying either i have to climb this mountain or it's not real and i can't process either you know what i mean i can't process this this if it's real and if it's not, then that's kind of like the mountain turns into a canyon, you know? You know, this is really where I think Rachel, she she moves in closer to her father and she puts her hand on his chest. This is really this kind of like where she feels like the wife, you know? And she's just trying to get her father's attention, I think, and to say like, listen, I wanted her to get better. I wanted what you want right now. But this is not how it can happen. This is not allowed. Like, she clearly doesn't care. And I'm going to stop holding out hope that she's going to recover because she loves us. And I think that's kind of this thing that Paul's been holding on to. It's like, you know, Kim Kim loves us enough to get better. Dad, look at me, okay? I am right here, okay? And I am telling you that after Ethan died, I wanted her to get better or just die. Rachel, she's better. And she's no, better. no, recovery doesn't work if you lie. She knows that. I am worthless to her. She doesn't give a you shit about the rest of us. Worthless. How dare you? I think this moment, this questioning of Kim's love, I think what's really interesting about this next scene, and that it took me a while to see, is that Anne Hathaway, I thought it was that she wasn't I thought that she was feeling over the top or or inauthentic, but she's actually perfect. This is exactly who this woman Kim is and how she would sound in this moment of trying to appeal to her family. I love you guys. I need you guys, but you don't get to sit around for the rest of my life deciding what I'm supposed to be like. I mean, you weren't there. You weren't inside of my head when I was fucked up. You were certainly not there now. Kim. You haven't gotten any idea how I feel. Kimmy took Ethan for granted. You were high for his life. You were not present. 
broke your heart. Yes. And you drove him off a bridge. And now he's dead. It was an accident. And I don't think it's that Kim is not sorry for what she did. I don't think that, that it's that she didn't, that she doesn't regret what has happened. But I think where the conflict is, is that why isn't that enough? You know, and of course, addiction is, is a disease and that's a much larger conversation. But I think in this dynamic and in with these people and the way that they see the world and the way that they're functioning and all that they've had to carry, I think to have the tolerance for that, like I get it, like I understand why they wouldn't have the patience anymore and why there is just kind of that going for broke of like, listen, here's the deal. You were high most of his life and you killed him. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't even want me to tell you, you know, and I think what she's going into in this next moment is, is I mean, and I, I feel like I'm not being compassionate, but I really think this is the intention, is that she is playing the victim card here, and that this next moment is all an act. I'm giving Anne Hathaway the benefit of the doubt and Jonathan Demme the benefit of the doubt here, and Jenny Lumet, because what seems real to me is that in this moment, Kim would also go for broke in using manipulation and using gaslighting and um, lying to get out of this situation. Yes, I was. Yes, I was stoned out of my mind. Who do I have to be now? I mean, I could be Mother Teresa. It wouldn't make a difference what I did. Did I sacrifice every bit of love in this life because I killed our little brother? Oh, it was an accident. I'm, it I'm was an accident. Sorry. I'm sorry. Me. I'm sorry. Me. It was an accident. I'm sorry. And so, of course, the scene ends with Kim walking out and, you know, making an exit, getting the last word, and Rachel apologizing to her father, apologizing for something she doesn't have to apologize for. And, of course, Paul is, is crying. Paul is, is navigating his emotions in, a, in an interesting way, right? Like, it, it, it's an acting choice, but I think it says a lot about um, him. He's not, he's not letting it out. It's this, like, silent, like, biting it back kind of crying. But what I love the most about this scene and one of the, my favorite things about this movie is the fact that this scene ends with the shot of Carol crying. I, like, I can't even. To have this, this moment where this whole like, climactic sort of emotionally climactic moment between these three people, this conversation that they've needed to have for years, and we see how it all falls apart, and then we're reminded of the of the story, the tangential story of Carol, the stepmother, you know, um, and how th that is that kind of completes the scene of the role everybody plays in this situation. So let's just talk about Anna Devere Smith. Um, so I was familiar with her from um, when I was younger. My uncle gave me her book, uh, Letters to a Young Artist, and so I knew her from that. And I didn't really know her. I mean, I obviously I knew through that that she was an actress, but like I had not really seen any of the stuff that she had done. Go look up Anna Devere Smith. She is the inclusion of her in this movie elevates this movie. She's brilliant. Like she's just um, she's a great actress. She's she's like just a great mind. And she is what I learned, especially from Letters to a Young Artist, is that she's so dedicated to creating backstories for her characters and really like 
she is dedicated to the nuances. She is into the details, you know, and you do see it in this performance. And um, you also see it. The other uh, place where you will see a lot of Anna Devere Smith is in Nurse Jackie, where she plays Gloria Acolytus. And she's phenomenal. She's I there will I feel like I need to do a Nurse Jackie episode because I love Nurse Jackie. I love Edie Falco. I love I just think that whole show is great. And so uh, and there's some moments in there that I want to queen out on, but I don't want to get off track. So um, what I what I think is so great about that is and about her role in this movie is that she's not she doesn't have any scenes. She doesn't have any scenes dedicated to her. There's no there's no moments. There's no one on one conversation. She's always in the mix of people. Uh, the scene we just talked about before is, uh, you know, that's kind of how she functions in a lot of the movie. And it's it's the kind of thing where that character could really fade Um and, it, you know, it's hard to kind of give that character a story, you know, because this is about so much else. This is about everyone else, you know. And so what her role is here is just to kind of add character and add nuance and help tell the story of this family. But because Anna Devere Smith does all of that work, I feel like she's fully informed who Carol is. She knows she knows what Carol's first marriage was like. She knows how she met Paul. She knows, you know, the the challenges that they face. She knows what Carol's relationship is with uh, Paul's ex-wife. And she has her own specific relationships with Kim and with Rachel. I think that all of that has been figured out, even if none of it's in the script or actually kind of necessary to the plot, you know? And so where we see that, there's, um, I mean, we just talked about my favorite part is when she's crying at the end of that scene. And I just, like, whoever, whoever thought of that, whoever's idea that was, I just think you're brilliant. And so um, I also really like when they first pick up Kim at rehab and they're in the car. It's Paul and uh, Carol and Kim in the back seat. And there is, they're all kind of just having that conversation of like, okay, like who's, you know, who's already there? And they're kind of, it's very kind of gossipy and kind of um, Kim's kind of throwing out lines just to kind of see what kind of reaction she can get. And Carol is so great in that moment. There is, at one point they're talking about Rachel's friend, Emma, who, who Kim doesn't really like. And, you know, when she says, oh, so Emma's already there. And there's, there's kind of this knowing nod from Carol of like, I know, I know, like she's a bit much. Um, without being nasty on her own, you know? And I think Kim really needs that. The role that Carol plays in this family is really important. And the fact that she can be a different relationship and can be, she's not trying to fill a mother role, really. And, and you know, the step-parent isn't necessarily. I think the step-parent relationship is very interesting because it is, in my mind, it's, it's, it's defined between each, in each relationship. It's, you know, they're like snowflakes, you know what I mean? I think that I don't really think there's one way to be a step-parent or to have a step-child, step-parent relationship. I think it, it's this opportunity that you have to create a family dynamic, you know, because it's like you, you're born into the rest of your family dynamics and then you just have to like make that work, you know, but then with a step-parent, you can kind of, you can each kind of pull from like what you've learned and you each have the time to get to know each other and figure out how you work well together and how you interact best together and then have that relationship. And I just think like, that can be a recipe for success, you know? And I think that to whatever extent that Kim and Carol could do that with, you know, everything going on in Kim's life, I think they have, you know? Um, this is another tiny moment that is just worth mentioning and is is all Anna Devere Smith, is when uh, Deborah Winger shows up with her husband to the rehearsal dinner, um, 
Paul and Carol stand up and they're, they're, they're watching Kim and Rachel talking to their mother and there's, there's kind of this protective quality, kind of just monitoring and monitoring how Kim is navigating it, of course. This is all about Kim. If Kim wasn't there, they wouldn't have stood. And there's this way that Carol puts her hand in her pocket and kind of stands there. There's this authoritarian stance that she has um, that feels somewhat masculine. She is she has a uh, a larger presence than Paul. I think that she has a dominant energy in that relationship. I think it, in a way that works. I think a way that he needs. This isn't a negative thing at all. It's such a perfect pairing. He needs someone like her, you know. And the way that she does that, it just gives me this like really interesting. I don't know that this this wariness that that she's carrying that we see only in that moment that carol at the whole at the same time she's observing everything and she sees everything and she knows what's going on and if you want to know what's going on in the situation you talk to carol so before we close things up here in the details i couldn't talk about rachel getting married without talking about the punch scene and more specifically deborah winger as abby as rachel and kim's mother i haven't really i've kind of just been kind of mentioning her in different moments but she is i think she's probably my favorite part of this movie i think she and anna devere smith are kind of neck and neck for the ones i'm most intrigued by by this movie every time i watch it and i love this scene when um kim has you know she's fled the house she's fled the family and she's gone to her mother to try to get to try to get something from her mother that she has not been able to get most of her life we see this in the rehearsal dinner and there's this great scene when abby and her husband andrew show up and andrew i just want to mention i don't know why i think he's just so perfectly cast i what was the actor's name i have it here in front of me because i wanted to you know give him credit he's he i think he has like maybe one line um, Jerome LePage or LePage, um, apologies if I'm not saying your name correctly, but he is so perfectly cast as what I would picture the second husband looking like. And in the house that they live in, this kind of like, um, it, it, I don't even know how to describe it. I guess there's just something about the, the style of it, the kind of like, it's this like tucked away, kind of like modern, slightly austere, slightly kind of like mid-century at the same time, kind of, you know, I don't know, big, big glass pane doors and, and you know, marble floors and, and a big fireplace. Like there's something about all of this it feels hidden. It feels um, like a cave that you have to enter. And I think that's an interesting choice I might be reading into, but that that's what Kim enters to try to get really blood from a stone, is love and comfort from her mother. You should really call Daddy, honey. Yeah, okay, in a minute. You know how he worries. I will in a minute, yeah. No, he's worried, honey. I need a glass of water. Here, I made tea. Come sit down, honey. You look so upset. And it's really just from even how the scene starts, even from Abby saying from the very beginning, like, you should really call your father. You know how he worries. Like... Can I can I play hot potato with this back to him? Like this really I can't I can't possibly handle this. And you know, and Kim is saying, you know, I need some water. And there's just something interesting, even in how Abby says, Well, I've made tea. And it's like, that's not what I want. I don't want to sit and drink tea with you. I need a glass of water right now. And that in of itself is like emblematic of even in that little moment of of the entire conflict of their relationship. 
Deborah Winger's body language, she doesn't touch Kim. She keeps her arms crossed. She keeps a distance. Like there's just the sense of like, it's as if Kim just got sprayed by a skunk and she's just trying to avoid making contact. And then when they sit down on the couch, there's there's this kind of like measured quality. She's just asking like the easy questions. Is it just, is it, is it just things that I can handle? Did something happen with you and Rachel? Did it, is everything all right with the wedding? If everything's coming to light today, Kim kind of goes for broke in her own way here with her mother in a real way. And and this is important to point out. Like, this is the real Kim, not not what we saw with her family. This is the real Kim, I think, when she is asking her mother, like... Why did you leave me in charge of him? You knew. All of you knew, Kim. People told you. I was a junkie. I was a crazy drug addict. I stole from you. Yes. I lied to your face. I weighed six pounds. My hair was falling out. I spent every dinner in the bathroom. Honey, you were sick. That was an illness. You know what I was. I stayed in my room for days. I passed out all the time. No. No. What were you thinking? No. Why, why did you leave me? I wasn't there. I didn't leave you. Why would you leave me in charge of him? And as Kim is going on, it's almost like there is there's this tank that's filling for Abby of how much can she deny? How much can she push away? How much can she rationalize? Because you were good with him. Mom, mom, why would you leave? No, you were a drug addict to watch your son. No, you were good with him. And I just have to say, I love how her voice breaks when she says you were good with him. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Deborah Winger quality. It's this thing that she does that's super great. Um, but it's, it's when she starts to fight back against Kim in this moment, like, no, you were good with him. You were the best you ever were with him. And then it just fucking turns. You were good with him. Ma- you were the best you were with him. Listen to me. Listen. I did it. What about you to kill him, sweetheart? Mom, you were not supposed to kill him. What are you doing? Get off. Mom. And I love that this is the first moment when she actually touches Kim as she leaps up and she grabs her and says, well, I didn't expect you to kill him. And I think the fact that and the way that she says, well, I didn't expect you to kill him, that is when Abby is now being real with Kim. It's in this moment that they're actually being real with each other and she's showing her how she really feels about this and that she she doesn't excuse it as an accident and she doesn't... Um, I don't know. She there's there's just a, a rage. It's not even about expectations. It's not even about I wasn't supposed to. I didn't expect you to kill him. You weren't supposed to kill him. It's just like she keeps repeating the word kill because I think that's just how awful she feels that this is and just how much this has hurt her. Is like it's as if Kim murdered her son. It, it she to call it an accident doesn't capture just how angry she is. And then of course you know she. Kim throws her off of her and she has this moment where she kind of pauses and it's an, it's just an interesting staging and choreography where like I think I think her grabbing Kim and yelling at her all of that I think that was that was the the lid or like the that was the top that had to get ripped off and all of this rage was underneath and so in that moment 
when she pauses, it's like that's when all the rage comes out. And the only way to like handle it is is this really unconscious decision to just punch her in the face. And it's and you can tell that like she didn't expect it at all. And neither of them, of course, expected it at all. And I, I get it. You know, like I don't endorse I don't endorse anyone punching anyone in the face. But I think what this is what this is saying, like what this is representing, what this is symbolic of, of like the the level of of, you know, uh, stagnant rage that Abby has towards Kim. And this really shows us the other side of why Abby will just not give her the time of day. And maybe she's always kind of been a bit of a distant mother. We certainly see that with Rachel as well. There's that scene earlier on where they're talking about, you know, if, if Abby wanted to be more involved in the wedding planning and she was like, oh, no, you know, I, I don't want to be one of those mother mothers-in-law, you know, one of those super involved moms. And, you know, Rachel's like, well, you know, you could be if you wanted, you know. Um, we see that she's she has this resistance. She has her own story and her own wounds. But I think there's something now between, you know, because she certainly is willing to connect with Rachel as much as she can, but there's such a resistance against Kim. And it'd be easy to just kind of write, you know, write Abby off as like deficient and say, oh, like she's just not a good mother. But I think with this scene, despite the fact that we're seeing her punch her daughter in the face, I feel like it's humanizing of like, oh, that is how angry you are and that you haven't dealt with that anger. And like, I guess I kind of understand on a human level why you don't want anything to do with her. Like, I understand that feeling. And um, it, it's not necessarily what's right or wrong. It's just like, there's no such thing as a right and wrong with these family dynamics, with anyone's family dynamics. It's like profoundly subjective. And I can't speak to how they operate. But the fact that it is this way, that it is imperfect, I think just goes back to how realistic this is and how... Um, dedicated to to telling the truth that this movie really is and that my friends is my thoughts my my truncated thoughts because i could go on and on about rachel getting married um there's of course so much more to say there's so many more scenes to dive into there's kim's monologue at the aa meeting um there's there's so much more nuance but i have to you know i have to pick and choose um i can always do future episodes right um, speaking of future episodes, I, I want to thank everyone who has sent in recommendations and requests. Consider them all heard and noted and potentially eventually scheduled. Um, I'm, I love it. Like, there's nothing that could be better than other people suggesting things for me to clean out on and in the details. Uh, because that just means that y'all are into this. So that's just the best. Um, and of course, if you have your own recommendations and requests and just feedback that you want to send along, best way to do that is either to drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com or you can hit me up on Twitter at Colin Drucker. Um, or of course, you know, if y'all can head over to iTunes, get a chance to leave a rating and even more so a review because that's just super helpful for people who are looking through podcasts. You know how this works because, you know, you listen to podcasts and they read reviews to see if they should really be listening to it and your glowing reviews always help. Um, so yeah, that's kind of all I have to say this week. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of In the Details and once again, indulging in another celebration of the micro moments acting choices, and nuances. Bye, everyone.